0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is August the 21st, 2018. This is episode 2276 of the Survival Podcast. And today's show is going to be called Backyard Aquaculture for Beauty and Food Production. And uh, I really think that's what aquaculture brings into your life. If you're not familiar with the term aquaculture, we're going to talk about basically building backyard garden ponds. Um, We're going to stop short of like a full-size in-ground, you know, excavator-installed quarter-acre or larger pond. We're not going to go that big. We're going to talk about everything from a few hundred gallons built with a stock tank or an in-ground liner, all the way up to swimming pool conversions. Now, I'm actually only going to do a little bit on that. I'm just going to kind of acknowledge that because I have no direct experience with that. My good buddy David, you hear me a, 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 You know, reference uh, occasionally on the show, actually has an in-ground pool that he did a pond conversion. Might be a good idea someday to get him on for an interview to talk about that. I think a lot of you guys really dig what he's what he's done there. But I've kind of worked, you know, in, in that middle ground on a lot of different projects. Now I got some new ones coming out this fall, and uh, we're going to talk about that and and what it's brought to our lives here at the property. Uh, it's it's pretty cool. I, I went out and I actually talked to the fish today. Uh, we we're doing this new thing on Instagram. And a little update on that, uh, we have changed the name of the Instagram channel from Jack Spirico to It's a Jack Life. And it, that's to make it a little bit more clear that you know 99% of the posts that are going to go up there are not me. They're Dorothy and her view into my crazy-ass life that she has to deal with. And uh, she put up a picture today of it's me standing out there with my morning cup of coffee, and I'm looking at my Miyagi Pond. And it said some of the effect is it's Tuesday morning. He still doesn't know what the hell he's going to talk about. He says the fish will tell him what to talk about. And uh, the fish did speak to me today, and they said, hey, stupid, talk about us. You come out here every day, and you don't talk about us enough. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk about how you can do this in your own backyard. And I know, some of you, I live in Maine. I live in Pennsylvania. I live in Michigan. It'll freeze. All my fish will die. Now, we're going to talk about some ways to deal with that today, too. Um, There are people doing this all over the country, therefore you can do it too. Now, if you're in Zone 2 in Alaska, maybe this is not for you, unless you're going to put in some kind of in-ground greenhouse or something like that, which might be cool. I would do it if I were you. Uh, But, you know, for everybody else, I think this is something you can do just about anywhere. We'll get to all of that and more in just a moment. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor today, number one today, is RidgeWallet.com. These guys came to me in December of last year and said, hey, you got any room for sponsors? And I actually said, you know, I've got two sponsors that are kind of going to go away quietly because they didn't do nothing wrong, but I kind of feel like I've done all I can for them at this point, that, like, they're, they're in a saturated TSP market and one-off type product. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm interested. And uh, they said, well, let us send you a couple of these things, and you check them out, and, you know, empty out that big-ass wallet you carry around and, and minimize down and, and, and just try this for a month. And because my thing is, if I wouldn't use it, I wouldn't recommend it. So I thought they were cool, but I wasn't sure how I'd feel about it. So I did, and I I realized I had a lot of crap in my wallet that I felt like I needed to have on me that I really didn't. And I just took basically all my cards and stuff and put them in my Ridge wallet, and I stopped using the cash clip because I've always carried cash in a separate pocket in a little, you know, a little like uh, a little uh, little uh, bundle. Away from my wallet So if anybody ever steals my wallet I steal my cash That's a good little tip there So I started doing that And I realized that clip fit in my pocket Just like a a folding knife Like a a flip folder So I started carrying that wallet that way And it's always there It never comes out Um, It it, it works great It protects me from RFID sniffing of identity theft And I've just You know I I don't miss my old billfold That used to sit on my butt at all I've stopped reaching around Trying to find it I do occasionally get out of the vehicle like, do I have my wallet? Because it's so small and so convenient. Um, it's just a great product. And they have a lot of other cool stuff, too. they got a great day pack. Uh, they got phone cases. they got new products coming out all the time. And they do a discount for MSB members as well. You can find that in the benefits section of your MSB. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, log into your MSB account where it says members, and uh, and check the benefits section before you buy from Ridge Wallet. Next up today, butcherbox.com. Man, I'll tell you what, we, Dorothy and I were talking between things like uh, you know, backyard production, buying from neighbors, and butcher box, and, and, and the stuff that's left over from hunt season. We don't buy a lot of meat anymore. Dorothy actually bought uh, a pound of ground beef yesterday at the grocery store, grass-fed ground beef. And it was only because we, we like kind of spaced out and we didn't take anything out to defrost. Uh, with you know, with Butcher Box, most of our meat you know comes from them anymore, and it's just a fantastic, high quality meat. And we never get bored with what they send us because you know, once a month, I'll get my reminder that my shipment's coming soon, and I log in and say, you know, I don't want that this month, and I want two of these instead, and maybe I'll do an add-on and what have you. And every month we get this great big box of meat and bacon and all this other great stuff that comes to the front door. You can learn more at ButcherBox.com. This is one of those times, though. If you're MSB, go ahead and go to the benefits section, like I said, for Ridge Wallet. If you're not MSB and you're interested in ButcherBox, go through the banner on the website. I don't do affiliate links or stuff like that with them. It's not because of that. There's a special deal for everybody, MSB or not, on the first order. So make sure you get that. You can find it again at butcherbox.com, but best to use the banner on the website. And then just real quick before we jump into today's subject, let me re- remind you the MSB is a great deal. I had somebody today that said uh, a comment on the YouTube video I put out on the on the pond. By the way, you know I, I feel bad that I, or, or something to the effect. If I listen for free and and I appreciate your teaching, even though I listen for free or something, so, you know. Uh, You don't have to worry about that. Um, I appreciate everybody supports this show no matter how, whether you listen, tell other people about it, share us on social media, uh, whatever. Anything you do that involves interacting with us, I appreciate it. But with MSB, the way to look at it is if you buy stuff, and most of us do, and if you buy stuff related to preparedness, backyard food production, all that stuff, if you use the discounts that are available, you almost can't help but get your money back. So that's really the reason to join. You can support us and get your money back. And for many people that you know buy quite a bit of stuff, I- I've had people email me and, and give me examples of saving three to $500 a year uh, just on our discounts. And-, and I'm always working to bring more discounts in for you guys. I'm actually fixing to go on a real Blitz Craig going into fall to see if I can find some other premium partners like the ones I brought in at the beginning of the year. I'm at a point now where I want to bring in the really kind of premium folks that uh, that offer you stuff that's unique. you can't just get anywhere else and uh, get you great discounts on them so consider m s b go to SurvivalPodcast.com dot com and click on members to learn more and then let's get into it so again um if if you if you've been waiting for me to do Instagram since two thousand twelve when I set up my account, I had like a thousand people following my Instagram account, and I had zero posts. Now is the time. You can go check out It's Jack Life on Instagram. And you'll see a photo again of me out at our Miyagi Pond. We also call it Timber Frame Pond today. And and, I, and it's, it's true. We don't stage stuff like that. Um, I, I really do a lot of times wake up on a Tuesday and I think to myself, what am I going to talk about today? And usually... That's where I go. I either go there I go out in my aquaponics aviary system with the little chickens and the quails under the shade cloth this time of year is pretty nice. But I almost always end up somewhere where the water is. And I do check those systems every morning and every evening, so I'm going to go there anyway. But on Tuesdays, I'll find myself either at the metal ponds, metal garden ponds, uh, with a new aquaponic system and right on the rail where I can sit and I'll sit there or kind of leaning over the Miyagi's where that picture is and that's really where I end up and I sit there and I think about my life I think about y'all and, and what I want to teach y'all today because Tuesdays are those shows where I dig into a subject and I try to really take everything I've learned up to this point in my life and condense it into that subject and then and then give it to you to do with as you will and I always have seen TSP and the information we provide like a Jeet Kune Do. You know, that's, that's, that was Bruce Lee's martial art. I have all this crazy stuff, and, and all of it works, so I wouldn't put it out. But it doesn't all work for everybody in every situation. So you take from it what you will and do what you will with it and make your life better in whichever way you see fit. And as I was thinking about that today, I was thinking, you know, one of the things that really works for me is these, these ponds. Uh, there was a, a day just a couple weeks ago where I put out a video where I, uh, I showed the progress of some of the fish. I took one of the fishing poles out there with a little bait holder hook and some bread balls and pulled some fish out. Again, yeah, I took some pictures of it and posted it, and it, it was to check on the progress. How healthy are they? What do they look like? How big have they gotten over a year? But, but the reality was, I was having one of those days where you're just in a funk. You know, and I'm just like, I'm, I don't really want to do anything. It's too hot. I got stuff scattered all over the place, projects that are undone, and it's 100 degrees out. And I, I just couldn't get anything done. And I was like, I oh, bet if I pull some fish out of this pond, I'll feel better. And, and I did. And, you know, thinking about stuff like that this morning, I realized how big a deal this has become. And at the same time, how much it offers us from a self sufficiency uh, and, and self reliance standpoint. If you think about it, combined total with all those ponds that I have out there, I have thousands of gallons of water. And uh, my buddy David, who I mentioned in, in the intro, who did a pond conversion of his pool, is running his systems very much the same way I did. And it was an experiment one day. He went and took some samples out of his pool, dumped it through a Berkey filter, and sent it off to be examined by a water test company. And it came back the water was better quality than the water out of his, his sink. So with the Berkey and that just alone, we have just a tremendous amount of water resiliency. But there's also a lot of fish in there. I've got one tank's full of bullhead catfish. I've got uh, one tank's full of tilapia. They'll all get processed this winter because they won't overwinter well unless I do them inside again. Uh, And they'll be huge by then. But I've got just a tremendous number of bluegill, perch, pumpkin seeds, green sunfish, and I mean, we could eat for weeks before we ran out of them. We've also got some channel cats and some other stuff like that. So there's a lot of food resiliency in there. And then if you look at the video I put out today, that'll be in the show notes or the, the photos from today, you'll notice the abundance just in greenery. And, and we uh, sweet potato greens all the time is our that's our go to summer green for a cooked green because most of the stuff that you know does really well as far as greens doesn't do well in our heat, and they just do fantastic. And I mean, I could cut that stuff off of that pond every day for the next month, and there'd probably be more at the end of the month than there is now. And that's without even taking a tuber harvest. And there's uh, water chestnuts growing in there, and some of the systems have water celery, and we have Thai water spinach. And so even with, this is not with any of the aquaponics components. This is all just growing out of the system on shelving and, uh, you know, some static wicking and some stuff like that. So there's all of this resiliency. And so sometimes people ask me, like, why even bother with this stuff? You know, like, is this really, like, isn't it better just to grow a bunch of food in the ground? And if you live somewhere where it's easy to do, I think you can be more productive, productive. Uh, in total, but I don't. I still don't think you can be more productive per for, for square foot, even without you know any of the real aquaponics features here. And, and the other side is, is just the benefits. The first and foremost is beauty and relaxation. If you think about it, I don't know many people that would say I don't want a water feature in my backyard. I guess there's some people with a rational fear that their kids are going to drown in it or something like that, and they're not smart enough to design it, so that's not going to happen. But in general, people love water features. I mean, if you look at companies that install them, they charge a lot of money to do it. Well, they can be very expensive. And if you if you think about the the, the, the biggest and most extravagant uh, homes, hotels, etc., they almost always have a water feature of some kind. Now it doesn't necessarily always have fish. Sometimes it's just a big water fountain in the uh, like a lobby of a hotel or something. But moving water is calming and it's beautiful. So you have that. And then you have simplicity. Now, aquaponics is not hard, but it is fidgety and it is complex. There's things that go wrong. Whatever you think you know when you put your first aquaponics system in, you'll be a thousand times smarter about aquaponics if you stick it out for two years because of all the things that are going to break and go wrong. I mean, there is that. With aquaculture... We can put in like a single filtering unit that is an aquaponics-like feature, like let's say a single ebb and flow bed. Really easy to manage. Really simple. We can use one little pump and turn water over. We don't even need, like people say, well, aquaculture, you need a lot of filtration. Okay, look, if you want to take a a 300-gallon IBC and you want to put 400 tilapia in there... (laughs) And you want to run it not as aquaponics, but as aquaculture. Yeah, you're going to need spin filters and all that stuff. If, if you build something like my timber frame pond that has over a 1,000 gallons in it, and you put a couple hundred bluegills in there, and you harvest as the fish get larger and as maybe you know there's a little bit more waste than you want, you harvest your biggest fish, and if they're not breeding, you just keep at them. You don't need much at all. I've run that system with all the beds turned off for a week, with nothing going on except the pump coming up to a spray bar. The spray bar is a piece of one-inch pipe with a plug in the end and eight-quarter-inch holes drilled in it. And all it's doing is just agitating the surface. And between all the plants in there, the volume and the way that it's built, where it gets shaded during the day, and gets sun and shade, and, and, and all the the floating plants, that that pond does fine. I don't have a venturi in it. I don't have an aerator in it. I damn sure don't have a solid separator. I don't have a spin filter. I don't have any of that, and it does just beautifully. The, the, the metal frame ponds that I have that some of you have seen, basically it is three 170-gallon 6x2 uh, galvanized stock tanks. They're run on level together like they're one big tank. They overflow into a 6-foot round 470-gallon tank. And it overflows into another one. And then the water pumps out of the bottom one back up to the top three. And it just circulates that water around. That's all it does. And down at the bottom, there's a a pipe that comes up and just runs and recirculates water at the bottom one. So there's a valve there, and that pipe sends water up to the top. But the excess pressure is, is allowed to agitate the surface at the bottom. That's it. That's it. It's just three valves at the top spraying water into those tanks, controlled so it doesn't overfill them. It gives it time for it to drain out of the next one. The water falls from one pipe to the next one. There's nothing else in there. And some of you have seen, I've done videos where I take a, a mason jar and I dip it down in it and I pull it up. That water looks crystal clear. This time of year, you get a little more suspended solids. But even even now, when you dip that water, you can see some stuff floating around there. The water's still crystal clear. So it doesn't have to be complicated. It can be very, very simple. Protein production. About the only thing I know that that might be easier for protein production is a land flock of of either chickens or quails for eggs. Um, Because eggs are a good high-quality protein. Chickens do not take a lot of work. Uh, I don't care what Paul Wheaton says about it being wrong to chicken kind or something. You can have a coop and run operation, with deep litter and those chickens are happy and they're clean and they're healthy and they do a, a good job of breaking stuff down. You can have them break down. I mean, you can set up a coop and a run pretty easily and you can automate a lot of it and it might be easier than one big backyard pond. It might be. Um, but it's an egg versus fish as far as your protein. That is an ongoing protein thing. Um, and it does do some other things. I would put them about equivalent is multifunction stacking protein uh, developing systems. But if you start talking about you want meat, right, and you're, you're slaughtering chickens, I, I don't think you can really say this is easy. I guess quail would be up there, but it's in that it's in that trifecta of chickens, quail, and, and fish, the easiest protein you'll ever grow at home. The, the beauty of it, though, is the fish just get bigger and their quality doesn't go down. So if you've ever done quail, you know that you much prefer the, the, the six- to eight-week-old young quail that you cull out of a hatch when you're, when you're resupplying your layers. So let's say you're running a group of a dozen females and, 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 and two males. And uh, you, you decide it's time for those girls to go away. So you raise up another group. And so you'll, you'll hatch a lot more than 14. Because, well, you only need a couple males or maybe four males if you have, say, have some reserves in case something happens to one of them. Uh, but you, you don't know what you're going to get. So you might hatch 30 or 40. So you might end up calling out 25 birds from those young birds. Those are the best quail you'll ever eat. The older ones that you cull out, they're a lot tougher. And they don't, just not as high quality, I mean, they're okay, they're just, you do other things with them. You don't, you don't just throw them on the grill wrapped in bacon and get that succulent, juicy thing. But a fish, all of you get, if you let the fish grow for another year, you just get a bigger fish. I've never had a tough piece of fish in my life. You make fish tough, you've done screwed something up. Additionally, let's say you, you you don't feed your quail for a week. You got a problem. And you got to give them water or they'll die too. You cannot feed fish for a week. They do just fine. They don't have the metabolism rates of a mammal or a bird. So they're they're fine not being fed for a week. And they'll find stuff in their tanks. My buddy David doesn't hardly feed his at all. I don't advise that. I think you get much better production if you feed them. But they don't have to be fed. Like if you miss a day or two, it doesn't even matter. All that means is when you feed them on the third day, they're going to eat really good for you. Um, So they're they're really low maintenance as well. You could automate almost everything. You could get yourself one of them little five gallon deer feeders and put a deflector on it and hang it. So and you could set that and that would be enough food to feed your fish for weeks. And set it to run, you know, two seconds, twice a day, whatever you figure out, and throw pellets in your pond. You can plumb in a line on a float valve that keeps your pond topped off. And 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 pretty much at that point there's not a lot that can go wrong. Now, you might want to set some alarm systems or something like that up to make sure if the pump stops, you know it if you're not checking it every day. But it can be almost completely and totally automated. And then you can get vegetative production without aquaponics. In my Miyagi, I just have towers built out of cinder blocks. Then I have the porcelain tile that looks like a, a wood floor. I bought the cheapest stuff like that I could get, and I built shelves connecting the towers. And you just take a flower pot... And drill a bunch of holes in it and fill it up a couple inches deep with pea gravel. And then you put a layer of soil on it and you sit it on the shelf. And you sit it on the shelf, so let's say the bottom inch on average will be wet. You want to make it a little bit more resilient. Throw an inch of perlite in there and then throw your, your, your soil on it. It's constantly watered. You don't have to take care of it. it ain't aquaponics. There's no flow to it, there's nothing to clog or get gummed up. It just works. I have mint growing like that. I have green onions growing like that. Uh, we have a water celery growing like that. We have a water spinach growing like that. Absolutely, if it's a deep enough container, sweet potato will do well like that. Uh, I'm going to tell you, if you do put in ebb and flow beds, do not put sweet potato vines in your ebb and flow beds. If you want to put some slips in there to root them for a couple days, fine. If you let them grow... You look at my video, you'll see the problem. They just get too aggressive and they clog the bed up. But yeah, they do grow pretty impressively. But you can get vegetable production without getting all the complicated aquaponic stuff built into it. It gives you options like you know, set up a rack for grow beds and then plumb off of your pump and your, your pond a float valve to those grow beds. You have grow beds all on one level with just one float valve. And all that pond is doing is sending water over there whenever that float valve goes down. Just keep them topped up. If you do that plus plumbing your pond with a float valve so the pond doesn't go too low, it just literally runs forever. So I think there's a lot of opportunity here. I also want to talk about different types of ponds for you to consider. All things being equal, probably the best thing you could do is do either... If you, if you have access to somebody can do it for you without costing you a fortune, uh, gunite or concrete in ground. You know, you build out the pond, you put a form in using maybe rebar and, and, and hardware cloth and mason that sucker in. Because now you've got a permanent structure. It gives you opportunity while you're doing that. You can plumb pipe fittings into it and things. including like, you can put some fittings in that you just stub off and say, I don't know if I even need that, but it's there. Uh, now once it's done, you know... Uh, unless you have big frost heaves or something like that to do with, if you do it right, it's pretty much done forever. And if you do that, I'm actually going to say I would recommend that you still do what's called an EDPM liner uh, underneath it. It's like a security blanket then. Uh, But that kind of brings us to our next one. There's nothing wrong with doing the same thing in the ground with that EDPM liner. So let's talk a little bit about what EDPM is for a moment before we move on. EDPM is a type of rubber. It's like ethylene, propylene, dynein, monomer rubber, something like that, okay? Um, And it is made, I think, mostly, it was originally made, I think, by Firestone. It is fish safe, it doesn't leach. Uh, the average liner that you can get for a fish pond comes with a 25 year warranty and that's designed so that it would have some exposure to light If you design your system properly it's much more natural anyway to completely cover up the edges and if that doesn't get no light on it it has an extremely long life 25 years minimum at that point um, it really just works well. And about the only thing you mess it up is again having too much solar exposure to it or having something sharp poke a hole in it. It is pretty easy to cut. When I installed the one that's in that's, you know in my Miyagi, uh, I cut it with a razor knife. It was really easy to do that. So any kind of sharp thing that it would lay on would have the potential to put a hole in it. However, it's also pretty easy to patch. Even you know if you had to while it's still wet, uh, basically the same way they patch an in-ground, pool, an above-ground pool. When we lived in Arlington, we had a leak in our pool, and a company came out and they just put a patch right on it. They dove down underwater and smacked it on there, and it worked. Uh, so you could do that. It it does have the ability to have penetrations done in it, though it's not as straightforward as something like a rigid stock tank or you know a a designed. Uh, plumbing fixture for something like concrete or gunite, like an in-ground pool. But if you do EDPM in the ground, you basically have a small in-ground pond. Um, You could also, and I didn't put this in the notes, but I'll kind of throw it out here, you could do a bentonite lined in-ground pond, which would look very natural and has a lot going for it. Erica Strauss at Northwest Edible Life um, has an article on how she did this using cat litter. I'd really recommend getting the proper uh, bentonite, though. But she, she went through different types of cat litter testing this, found one, and built a small in-ground pond, and it worked. Hers is probably smaller than I would use for fish, but it would work. Uh, next is fabricated stock tanks or purpose-built built rigid ponds, like you can buy at Home Depot and Lowe's and aquaponics centers and stuff like that. Um, I really like stock tanks. They're designed to deal with cattle. I mean, if you really think about it, it's something that's designed, you stick it out in the middle of the field, it gets blasted with sun, rain, sleet, hail, everything else, and deals with cattle, and it survives. Uh, The rubber-made structural foam tanks are my favorite. I do have some stuff built on the galvanized metal ponds. I know people freak out about that. It's probably not the best thing to build ponds with, but I built a system with it five years ago. Everything's happy and healthy in that system. I haven't had any problems with that system. Every fish are gonna die. The fish are swimming, plants are growing. Everything's happy. If I had it to do again, I would probably make other decisions. But if it's what you have and what you want to start with, you know, go for it. Um, when it comes to the stock tanks or ponds, I still think there's a lot of utility in getting them into the ground. Some it provides a lot of insulation, temperature stabilization, and things like that. Though so if you want to do a multi-tiered system. You know, if you have two-foot-deep stock tanks, which most of them are, the deepest you can probably go on the ground is about 18 inches, maybe 24 inches. You want some lip there, you know, to, 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 to have so you don't have dirt falling over into it. Um, I, I personally wouldn't build them dead level. And then, you know, that next one has to be higher up still and then higher up still, so you would never be able to fully encase them all. That brings me to frame-lined ponds. And those can be above ground or partly in the ground or pretty much almost all in the ground. So if you look at what we did with the Miyagi pond, I went and I dug a hole as deep as I could in the spot, which is only about six inches where I can be there in a level. And I just took eight foot four by fours and just log cabin style made a box. First level went down. I took 12 inch galvanized spikes and it was difficult. But I pounded them all the way into that, that limestone, straight into that limestone that's, that, that's beneath the surface there. And then I started putting courses on, and I used, I think they're 8-inch spikes after that. So they're a little bit longer than, the, uh, than, than two 4x4s four going together. And I found some structural wood screws that I think are better. I don't know if that's what they call them or not now, but I will put a link in the show notes to the screws I used on the most recent build I did that's kind of a hybrid of these things that I believe are just as strong as the galvanized spikes. Cost about the same, uh, but are much easier to install. And you don't need as much structure strength as you'd think putting these things together. You need most of it down at the bottom, and as you come up, the water pressure... Exponentially gets less and less and less as to how much it has to hold. And when you spread that water pressure out across an entire box or an octagon or whatever the shape you decide, it really isn't as much as people think it is. Uh, we put that system together uh, about a year ago. There have been no signs of any potential failures or buckling or anything like that. And uh, I plan on doing a, a, a double sized system. I've talked about and ebbed and flowed on it about doing it. And I have a new way I'm going to do it. It's going to be very simple. It's going to be very much like this show. Almost no aquaponics to it at all. It's just going to be a big, beautiful pond. Um, It's going to be 16 by 16 by about 3 foot deep. And uh, so in that situation, because I have rock, the rock I have here, I can usually pull up about 10 to 12 inches of it with a mini excavator. I'm going to probably do a workshop this winter, not the fall one. It'll be like a one-day, or maybe it'll be like a one-day and an overnight and a two-day, like that kind of thing, like a mini one, uh, where we're going to do that install. And uh, that should be a lot of fun. So I'll rent a mini X for a weekend. We'll pull out as much as we can. And what I can't go down, I have a lot of soil I pulled out of that area already. We'll build up. So we'll put a gentle slope. So if we can only go down six inches, all we got to do is come up Six and then slope that six inches off like grading away from a house, and you've got a foot in the ground. And that's a big deal for me to go a foot in the ground. If you were further north, go deeper. There's no reason you couldn't, you know, either hand dig or rent an excavator and dig a four foot deep hole. And then above that hole, frame a box out of four by fours, landscape timbers, whatever it is that you want to use to do this and then put that liner down into the ground so that you had it. It, look, it would look like a one-foot-deep timber pond, maybe even two-foot. Two-foot's a nice height. People are a lot less likely to fall into it. It's a good height to put a rail, it on, rail on it and be able to sit on it. It's a good working height. If you do want to do some aquaponics later, it's a good height as far as your overflow heights, you know, one-and-a-half, two feet. But you now you're three, four foot in the ground and that liner's down in the ground. Now what I did and I'd recommend, I went and got the foam board insulation, the really thick stuff, like inch and a half thick, it's cheap, and I just put it at the bottom of the hole, put the liner on top of it. If you were digging really deep, I would probably line the sides with it. A lot of people use felt, carpet, et cetera. The structural foam is cheap, and when you push it up against the wall, it's gonna stay put, and when you lay that liner in and fill it with water, it's gonna compress up against that dirt wall, and it's going to hold that dirt wall with the pressure of that liner. You're not going to have any cavings. You're not going to have any problems. And you're not going to have anything poking through your liner. So that's another option that you have. Frame line ponds. It can either be above ground, below ground, or a hybrid. And then swimming pool conversions. Um, my buddy David just decided the pool wasn't getting used. It was an in-ground pool that was in the house when he bought it. He, he has like a completely paved in back. Like 80% of the back is 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 concrete or more. And he's like, hey, I can just... You know, I got plumbing experience. I got a lot of engineering knowledge, and he just converted the whole thing to a pond, and it's beautiful. He's got his hot tub sitting there, so he'll sit in his hot tub relaxing after a long day, and throw a fishing pool uh, pole into his pool pond and pull out a catfish for dinner. Well, that's pretty cool. Now, I haven't built one of these, and I tend not to talk about things I haven't built. Other than I think it's an interesting idea. There's a lot of people who have done it. And you could explore it, and you know, you're talking about you know. Probably the smallest swimming pools out there are like 5,500 gallons. Uh, our our above-ground pool is like 24,000 gallons. So you're, talking about a, you're, at, you're at, to me, you're at a true pond size, and it opens up other options, more fish, more structure, all different types of things you can do. Um, I flirt with the idea sometimes that the easiest way for me to, to fix the failed in-ground pond down in my back third of my yard would be to just get an old 24-foot in-ground pool, take an excavator down there, to level out the center of it as best I can, throw that above-ground pool in there, push the dirt back around it to lower the top lip to as, you know, as low as possible from the relative ground height and plumb it up and get going. And it, it's crazy, but it may happen someday. We'll see. It won't be for a year or two, but it's, it's an idea. So there's a lot of considerations with swimming pools. And I'll just throw this out too. If you're up to doing it with an above-ground pool, Go on Craigslist. People give them away for free all the time. Usually they're so old that they need a new liner, but a liner's not real expensive. And usually for the cost of coming to get it, breaking it down and taking it away, uh, you can get them for free. I've even seen people do things like with aquaponics. In a greenhouse, one guy got a 24-foot pool, and he, he made it into, like I think he got a couple of them, and he made them into smaller 8-foot pools because it's just modular panels. So he made like small 8-foot Above ground pools in a giant walking greenhouse. Out of all free pools that he got, uh, you just by picking them up. So there's a lot you can do with pools too, but we're not gonna we're not gonna go deep into that. Let's talk about fish for your pond. My view is whenever you set up a new aquatic system, you're gonna have losses. You're gonna have a cycle that you're gonna run through the nitrite-nitrate cycle. And there's all different schools of thoughts on this and test kits and everything. And, and the truth is, I haven't touched a test kit in two and a half years. And, and I know that's wrong, but since it works, I don't care. When I'm cycling a new system, I take some water from an old system that's already healthy, and I'll dump a couple gallons in there. You just put all the bacteria, you don't need to go to the pet store and buy a jar of bacteria. You just put all the beneficial bacteria, and microbes, and everything else you need in there. Just dump it in. That's all you got to do. You want to take a pee in it a couple times? Yes, I'm serious. That'll start the ammonia cycles going and all. Uh, they call it peeponics. Uh, you can do that, too, if you want to. Uh, I usually dump a little bit of carrot juice in there. Uh, that gets some nutrient and some things like that and kind of kickstarts things. And I'll throw goldfish and minnows in it. And I mean minnows. You can go down to the pond, throw some breadcrumbs on top of the water. They all start swarming. You take a dip net, bloop, bloop, into the bucket, three or four dips. you got a couple hundred minnows. Throw their asses in there. You know, some will survive, some will die. They cost you more than five minutes' time. You did it wrong. And uh, if nothing else, when you do put larger fish in the system, there'll be some initial feed for your larger fish. I think that all systems benefit from having some comet goldfish and or koi in them. The koi are beautiful. Comet goldfish are actually kind of pretty. The problem is, if you put small goldfish or koi in your ponds, and then you add bluegill, brim, sunfish, call them what you want, perch. I know that's not what you call them up north. That's what they call them in Texas. Get over it. Um, green sunfish, pumpkin seeds, any of those little panfish. And you're probably going to want those guys on some level in your, in your pond. They will flat out murder goldfish and young koi. By the time those goldfish and koi get up to about three inches, they're pretty gone armor plated. And they can go toe-to-toe. And I've got about... A dozen comets that are about almost as big as my hand, living in my Miyagi pond, my timber frame pond. And there's tons of uh, panfish in there. It's mostly what's in there. They don't ever bother them because they're big enough. When they're little, they'll they'll pull the flesh. You'll find a. I had a, a young koi that I didn't realize there was some bluegills left in the tank I put him in, and it looked like somebody ate him alive. He was still alive, and the flesh was you could like see his skeleton. It was it was pretty. I I put him out of his misery. It's, I felt pretty bad about it. Um, so if you if you start with the goldfish or the koi and grow them out for a few months till they get some size on them, then you can go ahead and add your, your you know your, you would call them predator level fish. And by then your your system's good and and, and healthy. Now I know some people are going to be like I want to get I want to get my stuff going right away. I did that with with this timber frame pond I, I keep going on about. It wasn't a week after I had it filled up. I went down the creek and I caught about a hundred different sunfish. And I whipped their asses in there with a bunch of minnows. Only a couple of them died. It's amazing how resilient local fish are. So I threw those guys in there, and instead of, you know, worrying about the goldfish in there, I put the goldfish in another tank and grew them out, and when they were big enough, I moved them in. So that's another way that you can take that approach, because you could do that. You could go get a 100-gallon Rubbermaid stock tank, you know, and, and put a little $20 pump in it, and just you can throw goldfish in there in the shade somewhere until they're big enough to, to move on. Uh, So you could take that approach, too. Uh, But I like starting with goldfish or koi because they're cheap. And I'll start with goldfish. And when they stop dying, then go ahead and get you some koi because those are your higher-dollar beautiful fish. What I like about them for the health of the system is they literally graze on algae and, and like, mosses and things like that and seaweeds that grow in your tank. I go out and I'll sneak up on, on the Miyagi tank, and I have those shells I've talked about and those big goldfish, they look like little cows, and they're just munching on anything growing on those shelves, which is the main place that that stuff grows because it gets hit with the sun. And koi do the same thing, and they'll eat a lot of aquatic vegetation and things like that, and you can sell them. You're not going to sell 100 a year, but you can sell a couple, three a year, and pay for all your food because people with backyard ponds like big fish like that, and they don't want to wait for them to grow up. Uh, I, I've seen you know, koi sell for 300 bucks. Now, champion koi sell for thousands of dollars. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about one big koi you've had for three or four years that some yuppie wants in a pond in his backyard. You might get 150 $200 or more for it. That buys a lot of bags of feed. And, and a 50-pound bag of feed goes a long way uh, in a system like this. Um, as far as the fish that I really think make the best fish, I've talked about it in aquaponics before, um, but I really do believe they are the best uh, choice for most people, is those panfish. Uh, and, and specifically, sunfish, I guess, is the generic term for all of them. But these are, you know, bluegills, pumpkin seeds, shellcrackers, long eared sunfish, red eared sunfish, green sunfish. I think those are your six most common of them. People put warm mouth bass in there, but I see them more as a predator. I'll talk about that in just a second. These fish have white, firm, sweet flesh. They Adapt to feeding on commercial fish feed and other things like that in a captive system within a couple weeks and the secret, there's no real secret but this is what I do, I don't feed them at all for like two to three weeks until they're really hungry and then I start throwing food in and I'll, I'll feed them as much as they'll eat and when they stop eating, I stop feeding them and I do that for a couple more weeks and you have little piranhas in there by that point, I've got fish, you can stick your hand in there and damn near pet them, because when you put your hand in the water, I think you're getting fed, so they come up this makes it easy to catch them and take a look at them and see what's going on. And so you get really good, vicious feeding going on. That way you can feed them heavily, and you can put weight on them fast if that's what you want to do. And to me, the pan fish are the ones that do really good with it. With commercial feed, your smaller bluegills and stuff like that, you catch They have a pretty small mouth, and they're not really able to eat those fish pellets until they get soft. There's a couple things you can do. One is, you just don't forget about it. It turns into mush. Figure out how much they're going to eat. Put it in a cup or a container and fill it up with water. Let it sit for about 5 to 10 minutes and then dump it into your, your tank. Now it's nice and soft and they can tear it apart. The other thing that you can do is you could get some kind of a grinder or something. I've tried a bunch of different ways. It didn't work. You can get a sinking pellet feed, which will sink to the bottom. And as it softens, they'll eat it. But I find that it, the, the best thing to do is get that food in there and stay where they can consume it right away. Because then it doesn't just sit. If it sits too long, they tend not to eat it, and then it goes kind of nasty. And you also can't tell. Like, if, if your fish are used to waiting for that food to get soft. So soften it if you have fish that are too small to eat it. Um, and then your other option is go with your larger-mouthed panfish. Uh, pumpkin seeds, uh, green sunfish, and long-eared sunfish all have mouths that are more about the size of, a, of an equal-sized tilapia. And even when they're quite small, three, four inches, they can still eat a whole pellet. So uh, that's another option. It's just choose the type of fish that's able to eat the pellets whole, or only keep fish large enough to eat the pellets whole as your starters. Because unlike the person dependent on captive bred fish, when you're using local caught fish, you don't start out with fry. You don't start out with fingerlings. You know, you can go out and catch fish and say, I'm not taking anything home that's under four inches. Anything over seven, I'm going to go ahead and clean it today. And then so you're putting fish in about that size. They only need a year to grow out. They need two years. Not if you start out with four or five-inch fish, they don't. So there's a big advantage there, and they they grow relatively fast. They're very hardy. They're very disease-resistant. I got uh, ick in one of my tanks that that had a bunch of fish in them, and it nuked the cat. Every catfish that was in that system died. Only a couple of the bluegills, and they had it look like they had cancer, man. They had ick all over them, and when the water warmed up, it went away. The water warmed up, and I was able to treat it uh, on, a, on a short life cycle that this parasite gets. It all went away. They all lived. So they're very hearty, and they taste great. Catfish, I would say bullheads and channel cats are your best choice for catfish. Channel's probably better than bullheads, except I like bullheads. They're kind of cool fish, and I like eating them. I don't care what anybody says. Uh, but they are they are dirty, and I, they don't live in the mud, they don't eat mud, they don't eat shit. All of those myths about them are untrue, but they do mess a tank up pretty bad. Uh, so, you know, you just got to consider the type of system that they go in. That said, I've got about 10 of them in my Miyagi pond with all those other fish. Because it's such a large pond and there's so few of them, they don't cause any trouble at all. So they're a nice additional fish to have, and I like having a multi-species system with these larger systems of let's say 500 a thousand gallons or more uh bass and other predators i i I really think that you're going to be happiest if you leave the bass and stuff like that to like swimming pool conversions or really big systems i might throw a couple of them in the 16 by 16 pond when i put that in because that's going to be like i think i figured out like 5700 gallons or something like that so i might do that there The thing about them is, as long as you have access to where you can catch really little bluegills, like I got a pond that's about 15 minutes from my house that I can go down there and throw a handful of sinking pellets in. I can count to about 30. I can take a cast net, a five foot cast net, and throw it two or three times, and I can come home with a hundred little bitty bluegills. If you got something like that, you know, you do that a few times a year and throw them in there, there's plenty of food for your bass, and they're free. Otherwise, they're a pain in the ass because there are, you're, you can train bass. I don't want to mislead you. Largemouth bass, smallmouth bass can be pellet trained. I have not seen it successfully done with wild-caught fish. I've seen it done with hatchery fish, but not wild-caught fish. And a lot of actual like pond owners and stuff like that, You know, people with like an acre or two, they're actually sourcing pellet trained largemouth bass. Because when they put them in their pond, they set up a feeder like we talked about, an automated deer feeder with a deflector, and those bass will feed on those pellets. So they can put a lot of size and build up a large bass fishery really, really quick. For this type of application, I don't see that working. My buddy David, he's got some gar. He's got at least one gar. He's got some really, I mean, channel catfish are really not a huge predator fish until they get big, but he's got some bigger than his dog in that damn thing. And those are a predator fish uh, and, and, and bass. They're they're gonna you know they're gonna want to eat smaller fish. So as they get bigger, they will eat your smaller fish that you may want to grow out for yourself. So kind of do that with with that as you will. My systems run pretty much on channel catfish, panfish, bullhead catfish, and minnows. Um, let's talk about feeding your fish. The easiest thing is commercial fish feed. Yes, organic commercial fish feed is expensive, and you know what? I don't buy it. It's not that I don't think it's a good idea. It's that I don't think it's a good enough idea to pay five times for a bag what it costs. Now, look, if you have purged every single non-natural, non-organic thing out of your life, and you're thinking, well, I'm not going to be growing fish and feeding them commercial fish food that has some you know, uh, plant meal in it that might be GMO or something like that, I understand. If you're going to whine about commercial fish feed... While you eat a bag of Cheetos, don't talk to me. And I know there is a lot of people that do it. Like I, I, the Cheetos thing is not a joke; it's a real thing. I had a guy, you know, basically trolling me because I fed commercial feed to my fish, and I and I looked at his profile. I said, "Didn't you post yourself? Post a picture of yourself eating Cheetos out of a bag yesterday?" And he did. So you got no room to talk to me because that fish is far healthier than that bag of Cheetos will ever be under the best circumstances. It's inexpensive. You can buy it in a 50-pound sack at a feed store for not a lot of money. You're well under 50 cents a pound usually on this stuff. They eat it. It works. The primary makeup in it is fish meal. So the, the, the primary nutrient in there is usually fish meal, and that's not gonna be GMO because it comes from a fish, and most of it is is waste from ocean caught fish from the research that I've done. So it makes to me it makes a lot of sense to use as your base. If you can do better, by all means be blessed, go forth and do so. I have no qualms, no problems, no concerns. Nothing bad to say about your decision. I just don't want someone to sit with what I call celery disease and not do this because they can't find a source or can't justify the cost of a, a organic or you know something like that feed for fish. And celery disease, for those who haven't heard me talk about this before, is where you give somebody a recipe for chicken soup. Actually, it's parsley disease because parsley is an even better example. You give somebody a recipe for chicken soup. And you say use a you know a half a cup of chopped parsley as one of your ingredients. They have everything else they need to make the the chicken soup, and they sit there and don't make the chicken soup because they don't have the parsley. I don't want every anybody getting parsley disease over what to feed your fish. So go to your local feed store, ask them if they sell a floating or a floating and sinking commercial feed. They have feeds that are fifty percent sink. I really like those. A lot of those they're almost a hundred percent float. But as the, as the feed softens, about half of it will sink. I like a floating feed, at least a portion of my feed to be a floating feed because then I can see how much feed utilization is going on and I don't overfeed. And that's the number one thing to not mess your tank up. If you don't overfeed, you don't need a lot of the extra filtration and stuff that we've, we've talked about already. Um, next thing you can feed your fish, minnows. Uh, all that's another reason I like the, 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 the catfish and the, the bluegill and panfish thing. All of those species eat minnows. And if they get hungry enough, they'll really eat them. And some of them really prefer minnows. If you have ponds around you that have lots of minnows in them in the summer, you can just go catch hundreds of them whenever you want to. Minnow traps work, but I find a simple net, a dip net with small enough holes in it, like a six-foot or longer pole on it, So you can get a big, long swoop, and, I mean, you can just catch so many freaking minnows, usually uh, fathead minnows or some other variety thereof, and that's great. The other thing is you can grow your own. I have a tank that I purposefully have put no large fish in, and I have another tank that's a grow-out tank for koi, and I have minnows in both of those tanks, and then I have my new aquaponic system that right now doesn't have any uh, predator fishing it but it soon will and it is loaded with minnows and all i did was dip net probably a hundred minnows out of one of my other tanks and throw them in there and i i, I when i started out i threw a couple dozen in there because i didn't know if they were going to die and there would i put all big ones in there and some of them were pretty fat and within a week there were babies in there so those guys they're the fatheads i think are live bearers so they they popped and had babies right away in that tank So you can do that. If you only want one tank, what you can do is you can take something like a 50-gallon Rubbermaid stock tank and build a shelf so that the top of it will sit, let's say, two to four inches above the top high line of your pond. Drill a bunch of holes in it and weight it down and set it on a shelf like that. Throw your minnows in there. That way they have a place that they can hide from predator fish. The other thing you could do, there's drill holes in the sides of it that are large enough that the minnows can go in and out. The minnows can pass through easily, but any fish large enough to eat a minnow can't get in there. So you're probably looking at something like a half-inch hole. Now you've created what Sepp Holzer calls in his system. He's a much larger pond, and he does things with branches and stuff like that that exclude larger predator fish. He calls it a fish kindergarten. Your small fish have a retreat place that they can go to. The other thing you can do then is you can cover the top of that that tank or whatever you create as an additional system that's separated from your main fish population with something like duckweed or salvinia. Because goldfish, koi, and panfish will all feed on duckweed and salvinia. It's a very high protein. I don't think you can actually um, get the growth rates you really want from just it on those species, but they will all eat it. Goldfish and koi will eat it like crazy and it does amazing things for their color. Um, bluegills and other panfish the way the reason I think they start eating I don't think they go out of their way to eat it but when you have it in a pond with them and you feed them and you get them in a surface feeding and they're coming up and they're taking pellets, they start getting a little bit of it and they realize hey this is pretty good stuff and then they, you know you can't keep it in there with them anymore but creating a sequester tank, So it's in the same, you don't have to do anything special, it's using the same water. There's not another pump or anything, but it sits there and it has that calm surface for that top algae growth, or I'm sorry, top plant growth, again, like duckweed or salvinia. Both will be great filters for the whole system, by the way. And those minnows can come in or out, or you set it so they can only stay in there, and then when you want to feed your fish, you just pull some of the salvinia or duckweed off the surface, and you just pick it up and throw it in the, the main pond. And they'll eat it. And then you take like a, a like a spaghetti strainer, like a, a thin mesh spaghetti strainer, like a, a colander, a sieve, whatever you call them, and just just dip in there. And you get a pile of minnows, and just put them out in the main pond. You know, and they start hauling ass trying to get back in there. If they don't get back in there, they get eaten. So you can grow your own food, both from a standpoint of growing duckweed and salvinia or growing um, minnows. Another option is black soldier fly larvae. I haven't set up a system for that yet, but you, I've seen systems set up where what happens is a black, so a black soldier fly is this thing that kind of looks like a black mud dauber, iridescent wasp. But they don't sting, they don't bite, they don't even eat once they become a fly. The only thing they do once they become a fly is look for another black soldier fly to breed with and lay eggs. And then they die. And I think they die within 48 hours or something like that of becoming an adult that 90% of their life cycle is is this little maggot. And so the maggot, and they will. you can take any waste, but especially this is how you get rid of your, your waste that you maybe don't want to compost, your meat-type waste, your food waste that you don't want to put in the compost pile because otherwise it would stink. They'll decompose, and they do it fast. So once you, and I'm not going to get into how you set them up, but once you set up a place for them, they just show up. They pretty much live everywhere in the United States. You've probably seen them before. You'll often see them show up in your compost piles. They look like, again, they look like an iridescent little wasp, but they have no mouth. And so you'll see them flying around there. Once they start laying their maggots, when the maggots get to a certain age, if there's a, a ledge that's at 45-degree angle, they'll, they'll instinctively climb up it. So they build these really expensive things that are basically a rubber-made garbage can for these guys. And that there's a little ledge that goes up and around like a corkscrew around the out, outer edge of it, and then there's a hole. And they crawl through that hole, and you put a can under it, and they, they self-migrate into the can. And by the, you know, once they get in that can, if you leave them there long enough, they'll, they'll go into a pupa state. And so people harvest them put them in the freezer. And then you just use them to feed. A lot of people do them for chickens because they're a great high-protein, high-fat source for your chickens, and they're a decomposer at the same time. Well, you can set up one of these systems so that that little chute goes right in the pond. So they feed themselves to the fish. So, I mean, that that is another option you can do with black soldier fly. Other insects, um, you know, David told me, I don't know how well it worked, but he basically there's these cockroaches that are in a a colony only. They only exist in colonies. Uh, They're really big in the reptile industry. A lot of people feed them to geckos and things like that. But they don't really present a risk of getting into your house and and, and becoming an infestation like the German cockroach does. Um, uh, and they get to a certain, they get pretty big. I think the, I think the ones he uses with the hissing cockroaches is, you get like the size of a mouse and he created this raft and it had like a grid on the bottom of it. And then the, the, the adult roaches lived in there. And when the little roaches came out and tried to walk across the grid, they just fell through into the water. So you just throw them like potato peels and stuff like that to eat. And they just, you know, crickets, you could do mealworms. I found that to not be worth doing, but all of those things, these fish will eat. Uh, another option, I have lights. Just little LED solar lights. Uh, They're an item of the day. I'll put a link to them in the show notes. I just, since the Miyagi has a wooden railing, I just put four of them on that railing. I just took a single screw and screwed them in so they're pointing at the water. So every night, June bugs and stuff like that get attracted to those lights, and a certain portion fall into the water, and they eat those. Um, I've threatened to do this forever. I haven't done it. I really should. You could just get something and hang a bug zapper over your pond. I mean, that's probably the easiest, cheapest way. And I don't know if you're familiar with bug zappers. Most country boys are because you were a kid at some point and you and your buddy sat out there with a beer you stole from the refrigerator and shared it. Back when a half a beer each could get you a buzz and you're camping out and pretending to be in the woods in your backyard with a bug zapper. Oh, look at that one, right? Um, And and the thing is, when you're a kid, you're like, it's going to be all night and it'll get better and better and better. And like, it starts to get dark and they start coming in and getting zapped. And then for about... Sundown to two hours in the dark it's it's prime time it's z- zap zip zap zip, zap zap, zap zap, zap, and then it just stops i don't know what it is, but it just most nights it just stops, and you know you're sitting there at midnight lying about girls or something like that, and then one comes in pop and that's it you know and then every hour a couple get popped so your 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 prime time with a bug zapper is from you know dusk till about two hours after dark. So put it on a timer. You only run it for three hours a day. And it's just dropping food into your your tanks for your your fish to eat. I've seen things rigged up with like a light with a little spinner, like a little propeller. And that propeller, is bugs come and just knocks them in the water. I've seen some commercial ones that are pretty expensive. Seems like that could be rigged up pretty cheap. I bet Stephen Harris could figure it out. So there's a lot of ways to feed your fish other than commercial food. But the easy way is commercial food. I just take a big scoop. I keep a 50-pound bag in the garage. When it's almost empty, I pick another one up next time I go to the feed store. I fill that scoop up. I walk around and feed everybody. If the scoop's still full, I bring it back with me and set it on the back porch. And I keep using that scoop till it's empty, and then I go fill it up again. That's it. And it's not a chore. You know, it's kind of fun to go feed fish. You know, it's kind of like feeding chickens could be fun. Dealing with winter, the number one objection I get from people with my videos is, I wish I could do that here, but I'd have to drain it and restock it every year. Then how do ponds work where you live? I mean, sir, how do ponds work where you live? Volume of water and depth. Now, I'm not going to tell you, you know, if a climate is like this, here's exactly how much water volume you need, how far below the soil you need to go, and the precautions you need to take specific to you. I don't know. I do know that if you check into it, almost anywhere you live, you can figure out what it is for yourself and you can do it. But your biggest thing is get in the ground and deeper is better. So I would say just about anywhere, if you can go at least four feet in the ground, so maybe a foot above ground with like a framed hybrid system, four feet down into the ground, you're, you know, five feet of total depth, you're, you're probably not going to freeze solid. And fish just really slow down when it gets cold. They don't produce much waste, et cetera. Now, I, I have heard it said, and I think it makes sense, especially in smaller ponds, when they freeze over, take a drill or something and pop a hole in the ice so there's some air exchange. But other than that, I think you're okay. Um, the next is, if you have a framed system, consider insulating it. So if you were doing a lined frame system, so you're doing like my Miyagi, take that foam board insulation And attach it to the inside of the, not just the bottom like I did. In a colder climate, I would put maybe one and a half inch foam board insulation all the way around it. That will help some. Keep some cover on your pond through the winter. Take that foam board insulation in the winter time and throw it on the top. Hold some more water, uh, some more heat in the water is one thing you could do. We found that works somewhat. Um, If you're doing framed systems, you can also do a stock tank in a frame system, but make the frame bigger than the tank. That's what I did with my latest aquaponic system. It's an 8-foot frame with a 6-foot stock tank. And then I just took cheap topsoil, about 20 bucks worth, and filled it in. So effectively, it's buried. It's above ground, buried, held in by the retaining walls. So that's another way you can help create more insulation. But in your really cold climates, you need more than that 2 feet feet of depth. Um, Use stock tank heaters. Uh You know, if you keep some of it unfrozen, then you'll keep some exchange going on and you'll keep enough of it unfrozen for your fish to generally survive. Specifically, use um, local fish. Local fish are used to dealing with water temperatures that are what you have in your winter. I know that's crazy talk, but they are. We have had very few losses with our fish in the winter, and I know. Well, you're in Texas, I do not live in the tropics, guys. I live in Zone 7. It's not even Zone 8. It's Zone 7 here. Uh, last year, I had 3-inch thick ice on my Miyagi pond, but the pump kept running, and it kept a hole open, and everything worked. And some of my other systems, I just threw a stock tank. Like in the, the bigger system I'm talking about, Uh, The the, the metal frame pond, the 170-gallon tanks, I threw a 250-watt stock tank heater in each one of them and plugged them all in. They're the ones that come on at 35 and go off at 45. And they kept the whole system. The other two tanks, they kept everything. Because the water was moving, they kept everything from icing up. You know, basic precautions you take in the north anyway. Wrap pipes, use heat tape, things like that. Keep water moving. Moving water will freeze. But... It it, it, it it takes a lot more to freeze it than still water. If you have systems that are like aquaponics-based and they're going out to wicking beds or something like that, design them to be drained and shut them off in the wintertime. They don't need that water running through them in the wintertime. They're, they're, you're not growing anything in there anyway. And if you are, you can manually water during the times that you need to. Water goes a long way in the winter. You get a lot more precipitation, you get a lot less evaporation. And then confine the water part to where the fish are, if you're doing any of these additional things. If you're doing just a pond, you're doing that anyway. If you put in water features like, um, let's like say you put a couple ebb and flow beds on the rails, just more for filtration than anything else, grow mint in them. Well, shut them off in the winter. Just shut them off. Drain them. Build that into your plumbing so that they can be drained And just keep that water recirculating in the pond. Another thing to consider is solar heaters. Um, Sean uh, Mills uh, talked about these at Nicole's workshop. And I'm going to need to pick his brain sometime going forward with stuff here. Because with the right amount of intelligence built into it, you could build something like a, a solar heater that's basically a box with glass on it, painted black with pipes in it. And water pumps from your pond system up into that box until it's full and then there's a a solenoid valve that closes. And it sits there, and it waits till that water is heated to a certain temperature, let's say 80 degrees. When that water hits 80 degrees, that solenoid opens, and the water flows down until all of the water flows out, and after a certain amount of time, the solenoid closes again. And it fills back up, and then the float valve shuts, like it won't let any more water in there, and it heats up again at 80 degrees. And then when it gets to 80 degrees, boom, it drops 80. Now, if you're constantly dropping... Thirty gallons of eighty-degree water, even in a very cold winter and you're pumping, it's not going to freeze up. It's certainly not, really not going to freeze solid. The thing is, okay, if you're trying to do that at night, it's not going to work. So you need to, and I still haven't worked all this out, but you need to build enough intelligence to it like this. Once the you know the temperature goes down and there's no light, that system will open up and drain, so nothing breaks. You know, what I mean, burst pipes, and it'll stop working until, it, and then the next day it'll it'll start pumping water up there again. And it's it's a you know wrap the the supply and delivery pipes in black foam and that type of thing, and you should be able to design enough intelligence in that that all through a winter, especially in a moderate climate like mine, you can actually not just keep the pond from freezing, but you keep the water temperature of the pond up to a degree where your fish remain more active and therefore keep growing. So there's, And then if you're using that water for any type of aquaponics, wicking beds or whatever, then your plants have warmer roots, and you can get them off to an earlier start. You can extend your season, all that kind of stuff. That's a little bit beyond where we're going today, but I think there's a lot to solar heat. So those are my ideas for dealing with winter. But in the end, go deep. If you have a five-foot hole with six foot of water because you're a foot above ground for a little, it looks like a little sandbox pond, but it actually goes five feet in the ground, you're not freezing solid. You know, if you're below wherever your frost line is, you're not going to freeze solid. And if you do something to keep the surface open, like a simple stock tank heater, you can do this anywhere, in my opinion. I haven't done it everywhere, so sanity check it against things in your area, but I think you can do it. Now, getting your fish. Let's talk about different ways to get them. Number one way that I get my fish is hook and line. I like to fish. I know where fish are. I know how to catch fish, and it's fun to catch fish. There is some real advantages, though, with hook and line. Generally, when I'm using hook and line, I get larger fish than when I'm trapping or netting. It also allows me to really take a look at a fish and say, I want this fish or I don't. Uh, and it, it it does very little damage to the fish. If they swallow the hook, that's different. But in general, when you, when you lip hook a fish, my survival rates of fish that I catch with hook and line and bring home are higher than those that I net or I trap. Generally, they get kind of scuffed up in the net a bit, and traps, when you're shaking them out, they get kind of beat up. So I think it's your highest survival rate, but it's your your lowest productivity per hour spent, right? So I can get hundreds of fish in in 10 minutes with a cast net at some of the ponds I I go to, Uh, and I might get a couple dozen fish in a decent hour, but they're better quality and they're usually larger and more of them survive. Uh, That said, traps and nets are useful. Uh, However, I usually catch really, really small fish in my traps and nets. And in some of the places that we get them, uh, I think they're stunted. And they don't ever really put size on them. Now, I have tanks where I keep those little fish. And uh, they're basically bait tanks. So when we go for catfish or something like that, I got my own bait shop in the backyard. If you're doing one or two big ponds, you probably don't want to do that. But if you have some predator fish in, you can always use those. If they stay stunted, they stay food-sized. right? So th- that is an option as well. But do think about where you're getting them from. If you find like a small like quarter-acre pond, and there's thousands of little bluegills in there, and they're all about bait size, you probably won't get a lot of size on them. That said, a few of them do seem to grow up. Um, buying them. I hate this option. I hate paying for something I can get for free. With some exceptions, Um, there are some great hatcheries. You can get some pretty good deals on on channel cats, blue cats, and blue channel hybrids. And and that's probably one of the better ways to get those. And they're pretty affordable for the size that they grow out to within a couple years. The other thing is, if you want to do tilapia, you're probably going to have to buy your initial tilapia. Now, if I was going to do tilapia, and I'm not, I'm going to use the ones we have and... Uh, I I got bored with trying to breed them. But probably the best way to do it would be put in like a 55-gallon aquarium in your inner house somewhere and get a trio of breeders of whatever species of tilapia you want and get another tank to grow them out in and do most of your breeding in late fall and grow them through the winter so that you get really good-sized fish by the the time it's ready to pull them out of your pond. And as long as your pond is somewhere, if you put any structure, it's easy to remove and you can see. You need to do something like white tilapia. When your water temperature starts dropping, they don't just die. They get slower and slower and slower. And uh, the day that you go out and start to see the first one kind of go sideways, they're all still alive. And last year in one of my ponds I did that, I went out and netted over 50 fish. And and a lot of them were already laying on their side that day because we got a really heavy cold snap. Water was down to like 49 degrees. They're supposed to die at 55. Some of them were still looking okay. I threw them all into a a 300-gallon Rubbermaid tank that I did my winter project that I did on YouTube for you guys with. Every single one of them, like coming back out of a coma. Warmed up, started swimming around. I didn't lose a single one. So there's an option there if you want to grow them through seasons. I kind of find that to be a pain in the ass. But if you had a a tank that was easy to get them out of, outdoor tank, I could see... Producing a couple, 300 a year from a a breeding trio that you take out there. I would also say that if you had a pretty big pond system and you had predator fish in it, like catfish and bass, those little bitty fingerling tilapia, they're candy. They'll eat them. Now, you got laws and restrictions and stuff that you deal with your own, but I don't like the idea of buying them unless I have to and breeding them, which is kind of what I just talked about. In larger systems... You can have self-breeding populations in your, your, your ponds. Uh, David has video every year of fry up on top of his, his pool, you know, swimming through the, the weeds and stuff like that. Uh, provide breeding habitat for them. Uh, one of the things you can do is take large flower pots and fill them with pea gravel and sink them down into your ponds. Uh, don't fill them to the top. Fill them about an inch from the top so they're kind of already concave, and your bluegills and stuff like that will use them to breed in. Though, if you have high populations in a tank like this, you're probably not going to get very far with your fry anyway. The other option you have is you can take, you know, set up a 55 gallon tank and take two of your nicer, or, you know, a trio of your nicer fish and raise your bluegill in an aquarium and set up breeding habitat and play around with it. Bull- bullheads are difficult, if not impossible, to do that with. Um, and I'm working on trying to get them to breed inside the larger pond tanks, and there's some ways to do that. They need something to burrow in, so I've set up some ways for them to do that. Uh, But those are your ways to get that. Now, final thoughts on this. This sounds complicated, and it can be, but it really doesn't have to be. It's pretty much make a watertight hole as big as you can, as deep as you can, for the environment that you're in and what you want. Put water in it. Throw a pump in there that recirculates water and agitates the surface. Put in some structure and add fish. Let some fish die. When the fish stop dying, add more, and then make it look however you want it to look. I mean, for all the time I spent on it today, that, that's re- like people have been doing this for thousands and thousands of years. People have been building small ponds and putting fish in them before. the days of electricity. People made small windmills that just had like a paddle system. that just went in there and just like a dip system. And just like it scooped up a thing of water and it dumped a dip of water, maybe four of them were on there. And a windmill went, and, it, and a water wheel went, and it splooch, sploosh, 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 like a, like a little uh, like a little fish wheel basically. All right? Or they use some natural flow. There's a creek on a place, and they had a place that was high. They could run it into a tank and run it off the other side, and they put fish. I mean, none of this is difficult. And if they could do this a thousand years ago, we can do it today. We have so many more materials and options and things like that, and it really is peaceful. And a lot of people ask me, like, how do I get my wife to let me do this stuff, make it look pretty? Go build a pretty pond. Put fish in it. Put some shelves in it. Build some. Sh-. You know my favorite structure device for these ponds? Cinder blocks. You put a cinder block. Like I, What I'll do is I take two cinder blocks, and I put them side by side so that the holes line up, and they make a long tunnel. And then I take two more center blocks and I put them the other way so they make tunnels the other direction. So you've got tunnels going different ways. you know. And then you put another tower right next to that one so that you can make a shelf like I've talked about or even just another one to put pots on or whatever and just do the holes separately so that when they're on the same level, if a fish is in this tunnel and a fish is in the other tower, they don't see each other. And the more stuff you do like that, the more fish you can have, the less fights there are. Everybody's got a place to go. Create a lot of structure and a lot of edge in these systems. And then a 1,000-gallon system becomes the equivalent of a 3,000-gallon system from what life it can support. Remember, all abundance is on an edge. That's true in all biological environments. All the abundance is on an edge. You go to a, fi- a lake and you see guys bass fishing, there's a 1,000-acre lake. where are they? They're all cruising the shoreline. If you see a mountain in the middle of the lake, there's a hump or a structure down there. There's another edge. You will at your garden, where does the most amount of abundance take place with you know weeds and productivity? The edge. The edge of the bed. You know, it's always the edge. So create edge in your systems. And and, and you'll do well with them. And again, if you're worried about winter, research what it takes to build a system in your climate and then do that. Because I know there's water gardens in the north. You know, I I went to uh, the Vanderbilt Estate uh, last year when we went on our vacation there, and they had water gardens, koi swimming around in them. So that's, you know, that's North Carolina. I've seen water gardens in Pennsylvania. That's that's Zone 5, Zone 6. So I know it can be done. You just have to figure out what it takes to do it and your climate and be energy conscious with it. So don't turn into a money sink. You don't want something producing $50 worth of fish to cost you $1,000 a year to run. Um, unless you just want the thing anyway. And then the fish are a byproduct. And that's probably a good way to look at this. These are not systems that are going to provide you you know, a metric shit ton of fish. But I will put it to you this way. I could go out to, to my systems and I could easily take four to six bluegills out of them once a week all year long. And I could feed my family a fish meal once a week all year long and getting new ones is easy because all I need are little ones. And that's a pretty sustainable protein source. Again, next to quail, I, I, I don't know that there's really anything else that can do something that consistent and easy for you. And, I mean, I don't have a problem slaughtering quail, but I, I found the, the animal that the most people have the least problem putting a knife to when it's alive is a fish. Uh, it, it's a fish. It's a, it's a, it, whether people like the term or not, it's a lower form of, of, of intellectual life than a bird. And so I find most people can slaughter a fish. And I find most people will eat a fish. So eat, like eat a lot of times you have a reluctant spouse or whatever, and if you grow rabbits or quail or chickens, even though they'll eat chicken from the store, they won't eat the chicken from the backyard. I, I've met very few people that won't eat a fish because it was grown in a tank. So it, it's, it's something that's usually easier to get everybody else on board with. So I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you have questions on it, and I, I feel like this might be one of those where there's enough questions to create like a follow-up show on it. Uh, send me your questions. Do TSPC pond in the subject line. If I get a few questions, I'll answer them here and there or maybe directly. If I get enough questions, we'll go ahead and put out a follow-up episode to this one, you know, Q&A on backyard aquaculture. Uh, like I said, I kind of have a feeling that this must turn into one of them. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed today's show. Uh, thanks for joining me. Uh, again, uh, we are kind of making a push with this thing. Dorothy's involved with the business at another level uh, on Instagram. It's called It's a Jack Life. As uh, our Instagram channel. Check us out there, and uh, you can follow all the crazy stuff that I'm doing and all the crap my wife has to deal with. And you'll understand why sometimes I'm like, no, I'm not doing that, because I feel like she deals with enough. Also, if you like this show and you want to support us, the easy way to do that is do your online shopping. Add a little website called tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. You go there, you'll see all the stuff that I've reviewed on Amazon. You can check out my, my items of the day. You can check out the deals of the day or whatever. Uh, but as long as you're doing that, you're helping support TSP and the work that we do. So I have a product for you today I'm bringing around for a second time. It's called BioGroom. This is a waterless pet shampoo, and I've tried a bunch of these And this is the one I like. This is the one that works best. I found this last year. We had an unusual cold snap in fall, early fall. Temperatures were like, highs were like 49 degrees. Now, it's not that cold until you're trying to wash a 100-pound pit bull that doesn't want to get a bath. And the damn dog got into something, and he stunk. And I really didn't want to give him a hose bath. And I had ordered this stuff. It came in, and I described how I used it on him. And it's a waterless bath. Basically, you spray the dog with it. And I just use a cheap, like, $4 human hairbrush to brush it in and, and rub them up and maybe towel them off a little bit if they're a little wetter than you plan on getting them. And they end up shiny, happy, and they don't stink. And I'm not big on bathing dogs. We do it a few times a year. I actually have groomers that come take care of Max. Uh, because he's such a big dog and so hard to do and hard to dry once you get him wet. and They blow out his coat real good and everything, so that's good for him. But I, I'm not big on bathing dogs, and this is why. Wild dogs, if you look at something like a coyote or a wolf, that are healthy, their fur is always beautiful, and they don't stink. If they stink, they, they're diseased, they're malnourished, they have mange, things like that. A healthy coyote, and I used to trap and hunt coyotes quite a bit, their fur is amazing. Foxes the same way. Well, they don't, who gave them a bath? Dogs in general, what they need is being brushed to have healthy skin and fur. They're not a, a creature that does a lot of bathing in, in nature. They will, but not a lot. So I try not to, to do things that are unnatural with animals. Like, I don't bathe my ducks, they bathe themselves, that type of thing. But, you know, there is something for that healthy fur and not stinking, where you're like, dog, you need to go out and stay out. This stuff works, and It's easy. I did all three of my dogs. None of them like baths. Lucy's almost impossible to give a bath to. I mean, you'd think you're killing her. And I did all three of my dogs with this stuff in 15 minutes, drinking a beer in between. So this stuff works. It smells good. It's easy. Uh, I use it on Charlie about once a month. He doesn't even get upset about it anymore. He knows he's getting a biscuit as soon as he's done. Uh, So I I really recommend it. It's called BioGroom. Uh, when I looked this morning, they only had like eight bottles of it left when I featured as item today, so they'll probably sell out today. But they got a bunch of the gallon size. It, you might want to try the small bottle first. I buy it by the gallon now because it's, it's a lot cheaper. Uh, a gallon is about twice as much as a 16-ounce, and you do the math on that. It's, it costs about a quarter uh, by the ounce by the gallon. And I just use a regular you know, plastic spray bottle like you buy for a dollar at the dollar store. Just make sure you know write on it with a sharpie or something what it is, because it's blue. It kind of looks like Windex, so you might make some mistakes if you you know you don't want to throw expensive stuff away and you don't want to spray your dog with Windex. So make sure if you're using your own bottle from the gallon size one, you label it. If you get the little one first, you can just keep refilling it from the from the gallon jug. But this stuff is the bomb. Um, it's made my life better, and I try to recommend things to you that'll make your life better as well. With that, let's uh, go to our song of the day. Our song of the day, we're in Elvis Presley week. And I like what John Arnold's done. He, he's gotten some music that, you know, Elvis might be one of the, the most well-known artists in history. In fact, while I'm not sure and I didn't do any research on it, I think Elvis might be the first artist in history to truly be able to go by just one name. You know, like now we have people like, what was her name? Beyonce or some shit like that. You know, Prince, whatever. Um, I think Elvis might have been the first person. That you could just you know once he was well known you just say Elvis like oh him not Elvis who right and even today Elvis oh I know who you're talking about right um but because of that there's there's dozens of Elvis songs that even young people today are very familiar with even if they don't choose to listen to him a lot they're, they're familiar with them. Um, this one is this from the '68 comeback special was the name of the album because Elvis was gone for a little while. I'll probably talk about that later in the week. But here's the, uh, here's the synopsis on this. Uh, the, the song, I should tell you the name of the song. The name of the song is If I Can Dream. This song marked the rebirth of Elvis' career after he'd spent most of the 1960s recording mainly soundtracks to the movies he was appearing in. This was a final song he sang on Elvis, his 1968 NBC comeback special in the United States, which was his first live performance in seven years. The song was written at the last minute by the show's musical director, W. Earl Brown, at the request of producer Steve Bender to replace I'll Be Home for Christmas. He wrote it as a response to the assassinations of Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King, which had happened a few months previously. And this was a big deal when this song came out, but this is not generally a song that most people know that are younger people today. Or that people think of when I say Elvis, if I can dream. But the 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 point of this song is, if I can envision a better place, why don't we have one? You know the old "If you can dream it, you can achieve it," and, and there there is some legitimacy there. If we can envision a world with less conflict and war and with more abundance, why can't we have it? And the answer is we can. The answer is we can have it. We just all have to do a little bit more to move in that direction. And as pessimistic as we can become about society, and no one is quite as good at being pessimistic about society as preppers, and probably I'm the most pessimistic of all about society as a whole, when I look at some of the stupidity in the world. I mean, there's times I look at what people say and think and do and act, and I just go, oh my God, we're doomed. But the reality is, the world as a whole has been becoming a better place Decade after decade after decade for centuries now, we we can have what we call false nostalgia. We can think about things like the 1950s and the blue collar you know boom in America and the baby boom and the free the, the in between the war era and all of that stuff and think you know it would have been better to have been born back then. But there really ain't a time in in, in the world that's ever existed that's better to be alive in almost any part of the world, except for some places that were probably not a good place to be 100 years ago either, than right now. There's more opportunity. There's more communication. And communication is key. The more we can get people talking to each other, the less that we are going to have them shooting at each other. So I think a lot of what Elvis was singing about in this song, we've moved toward today. We're not there yet. And that's the whole point. If we can keep keep envisioning better, then we have something to work for, and if we keep working for it, we'll keep getting better. Will we ever be perfect? Personally, I doubt that. But if we can get as much better as a society in the next 100 years as we got in the last, you know, our, our grandkids and great-grandkids will be growing up in a pretty good place. With that, this has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There must be lights burning brighter somewhere. Got to be birds flying higher in a sky more blue. If I can dream of a better land where all my brothers walking. Standing sometimes. Strong winds of promise that will pour with me all the doubt and fear. If I can dream of a warmer sun where hope keeps shining.